Hello everyone. Thank you for coming out on such a hot day. Um, it's lovely to um, see so many people here. Um, I don't think Mark needs any introduction. Um, we agreed we'd keep introductions short. But he is here to talk about The Peer Fools, which is his latest book, a collection of short stories. You can't hear. Is there a problem with... Oh, speak up. Okay. If, if, it's, if the aircon is distracting, I can turn it off, but it will get a bit oh, If we could just speak. Okay. <laughs> um, and uh, Daisy Johnson, who's here to talk about Fen, which is her debut and debut collection, um, doubly. Um, I also write short stories, so this is such a pleasure for me to have been asked to read um, two really um, stunning books and to come and talk about them. Um, how many of you are short story lovers? Yeah. <laughs> so you don't really need convincing. Um, the way this is going to work is we will talk for around uh, 45 minutes. Um, both Mark and Daisy, I'm pleased to say, are going to do short readings. Um, and after 45 minutes, we're going to open it up to you. So um, any questions you may have, that's the time. And then afterwards, there's, um, I believe, going to be a chance to um, have books signed. So um, I wanted, before uh, we move on to any readings, to start by asking you both what it is that really excites you about working with the short story, which presumably something does to have written a whole book. <laughs> <laughs> go on, you go first. I think um, originally the first thing that really excited me was how weird short stories tend to be. Um, there's a section in Mark's book where he, a character, lists the five weirdest things which have happened in his life, and each one of them could be this amazing short story. Um, <laughs> and they seem to really hold, be able to hold strangeness um, in a way that novels also can, um, but in a very kind of clear way. Um, and I think I love how there's sort of what a single point um, in the world, which is often very strange or destructive or odd. I think that's what I really like about them. They were just a puzzle for me. I couldn't work out how to write them. <laughs> it's, it's a pathetic reason to write something, isn't it? It's actually the wrong reason to write something. <clears throat> but I knew I'd written for radio and I'd written for kids and I could write a novel. And I just thought, what the bloody hell? Can't I write a short story? <laughs> it can't be that hard. It's just one word, then another, then another. You can just choose the right one. It's bound to work. And it just took me a really long time to realise that um, I just didn't like most of the short stories I was reading and I was trying to write those kind of short stories. Um, I don't really like Raymond Carver. <laughs> really sorry about that. <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't like those short stories that are sort of minimal and melancholy and not much happens and it's all about mood and it's a turning point in some larger story that's hidden behind the frame. I like stuff to happen. And uh, when I realised that, I, I realised you could write, instead of writing short stories, you could write stories that were short. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, I wanted stuff to happen. It to be compressed. Something that's struck me about um, both of these collections is that change is something that um, really communicates itself in quite different ways. So, I mean, Daisy, your collection is a lot about transformation, and that's something I want to go back to a bit later. Um, but, Mark, I think very often there's um, quite a critical, um, often felt like a tipping point, as if you, you reached a certain point of... Um, Wells Towers talked about herniation in the short story, which I really like, the idea that the pressure builds 
up to a certain point and then everything explodes. And very often it felt as if you were really um, pushing for that pressure to build and then things happen. Is that just a posh way of making people suffer? <laughs> <laughs> Is always a posh way of saying, why do so many people die horribly in your stories? <laughs> Something, something's, something's threatening to happen and threatening to happen, and then it does, and it's usually really bad. Yeah. <laughs> well, as I was reading your collection, I was remembering the... Um, there's a, a quotation which has been, um, I, I guess, run with, um, which was attributed to Chekhov, which is talking about how you should never... A dramatic principle being that you should never introduce something that you're not going to use and reading your stories I felt if he introduces a gun at some point the gun is going to be used it felt as if you were making a promise in your approach to each story that um, we would probably go there <laughs> if we could you weren't going to hold back and there's something very exhilarating about reading stories like that um, and in a way that relates to what you're saying about Carver that um, you don't skirt around things. You, you, you go yeah. boldly. Actually, can I yeah. can I answer that by saying something completely different that mm. you reminded me of halfway through? You, yeah. you quoted Wells Tower. Yeah. I don't know whether you've read this short story, but this, a short story that really changed my mind about short stories is the title story of his collection, Everything Ravaged, Everything Burned. Mm. Nine stories which are sort of in that class. You know that classic American short story form, which we can call Man in Trouble. Mm. You know, usually it's alcohol, family breakdown. But does anyone know Everything Ravaged, Everything Burned? The final story comes from supposedly a conversation he had in which someone said, what do you think it'd be like if Raymond Carver wrote about Vikings? <laughs> so he went away and he wrote the story about two middle-aged Vikings who just really want to be settling down with their wives, <laughs> drinking potato wine as the sun goes down over the field. But the psychopathic leader of the village has made them go from one to one more raping and pillaging expedition to Northumberland and they think they have to go because they'll be in trouble. And it's very funny and it's weird and then it gets horrible, then it gets very sad. And um, one of them meets a woman he brings home. You don't know whether she's been taken or whether she's agreed to go to get away from a horrible life. And she, she lost an arm uh, in a previous raid. And that relationship is a bit weird, but his friend is also sad because he's lost his friend because his friend has got this woman. And it ends with him sort of just growing old. And as he falls asleep every night, he just imagines that sort of the plash of oars in the field when some other set of people come to do to them what they did to other people. It's about 20 pages, and you get to the end of it, and you think, that was, that was like a novel. And I got to the end of that, and I thought, you can put everything in. Mm. You can do whatever you like. Mm. Well, something, that, something that's um, very striking about... Um, well, well there's, there's a difference, actually, in these two collections, in that there's a cohesion um, to yours, Daisy, through one location. Um, so the, the fans, um, it, it's sort of very dominant imaginatively. With Marx, um, it's, it's quite an eclectic collection, which is really exciting in that you take quite disparate subject matters and just go with them. Um, but one of, the, um, one of the things, and I'm going to read this out because I, I couldn't memorize it. One of the things that you have said recently, for better or worse, my subject is life lived here and now, families, houses, minds. I can manage the odd flight of fancy, but I'm stuck with naturalism for the foreseeable future. So one of the things that interested me was, and I know this relates to the extract that you're about to read, the way that you um, explored that when you were developing this collection. So the way you took often quite naturalistic moments and built them incrementally into something quite fantastic. 
and quite extreme often. I'm just realising I totally disagree with that. Now. <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> oh, you must. We'll get you. You must have to talk about this as well. Yeah. The way you, because we're both stuck with naturalism, and we both start in the real world. Mm. We both want something else, weirder and stranger and more entertaining to happen. So how do you get there? You can't say, and then the ghost appears, because yeah. that just doesn't work. You need a sort of way into it through myth or through through mental illness for example mm. or through endings when you think oh i'm not entirely sure whether that really happened or not mm. we were talking about earlier about the, the poet sean o'brien talks about he always wants to get into the weird zone his poems only work if he gets into the weird zone but how do you start off from the sort of concrete and every day and find your way to the weird zone would you uh, like to read your extract from funny because okay. I think that's that's quite a, an opportune moment to um, to listen to that one and okay. then we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that before Daisy does her reason. Okay. Yes, sorry. Do you want me to stand up as well? <laughs> yeah, why not? Okay. <laughs> then you'll have to stand up as well. <laughs> he loved Mars bars and Kit Kats. He loved double deckers and galaxy caramels and Yorkies. He loved Reese's Pieces and Cadbury's Cream Eggs. He could eat a whole box of Quality Street in one sitting and had done so on several occasions, perhaps more than several. He loved white chocolate. He was not particularly keen on Maltesers, Whispers and Crunches, which were airy and insubstantial, though he wouldn't turn his nose up at any of them if they were on offer. He disliked boiled and gummy sweets. He loved chocolate digestives. He loved Oreos and chocolate bourbons. He loved coconut macaroons and Scottish shortbread. He would never buy a cereal bar, but a moist, chunky flapjack was one of the most irresistible foods on the planet. He loved thick, sweet custard. He loved Frosties and Weetabix with several dessert spoons of sugar. He loved chunks of cheese broken from a block in the fridge. Red Leicester, preferably, or cheap, rubbery mozzarella. He loved Yazoo banana milk, the stuff you got from garages and service stations in squat plastic bottles with foil seals under chunky screw tops. He could eat a litre tub of yoghurt if he added brown sugar or maple syrup. He loved hot dogs and burgers, especially with tomato ketchup in a soft white bun thickly spread with butter. He loved battered cod and chips with salt and no vinegar. He loved roast chicken. He loved bacon. He loved steak. He loved every flavour of ice cream he had ever sampled. <laughs> Rum and raisin, dime bar crunch, peanut butter, tiramisu. At least he used to love these things. His eating was now largely mechanical and joyless. It was the sugar and the fat he needed, though it gave him little pleasure. More often than not, it made the cravings worse. He hated people using the phrase comfort eating. He had not been comfortable for a very long time, except sometimes in dreams where he ran and swam and from which he occasionally woke up weeping. He was 28 years old and weighed 37 stone. There was a creased and sun-bleached photograph of him at nine, standing in the corridor outside the Burnside flat, wearing his new uniform for the first day at St Jude's. His mother had run back inside at the last minute to get the camera, as if she feared he might not be coming home again and had wanted a memento or a picture to give to the police. He'd been wearing grey flannel shorts and a sky-blue Airtex shirt. 
he could still smell the damp fungal carpet and hear the coo and clatter of the pigeons on the window ledge. He remembered how overweight he felt even then. Whenever he looked at the photo, however, his first thought was what a beautiful boy he had been. So he stopped looking at the photo. He dared not tear it up for fear of invoking some terrible voodoo. Instead, he asked one of his care assistants to put it on top of a cupboard where he couldn't reach it. Thank you. And one of, one of the things that really um, struck me about that opening, but it's something that happens um, a good deal uh, through the collection, is, is that as the reader you're drawn in through um, detail, very specific detail, which builds incrementally to become something um, that feels like a force sucking you in, quite physically. And um, in the best possible way, a lot of these stories, um, I felt I want to read only one at a time. This is quite overwhelming. <laughs> I'm physically quite exhausted. And that's such a great feeling to come out of reading a, a short story with. I mean, that's um, it's one of the things short story writers aim for. Um, and I wondered, in terms of um, the experience of writing these stories, how conscious of you were how, how conscious were you of it being a physical experience? So something that you would draw the reader in through that, that sort of physical you know, every awareness. Time, I don't know if it's the same for all writers. You're asked questions about your process and how you go about <coughs> doing this and that, as if you have any idea what you're doing <laughs> whatsoever, as if you say, I'm going to go about it in this fashion, a little <laughs> bit of this and a little bit of that. If it works, I'll do it mm. in any way. Um, a sign of how chaotic and dog-legged the um, genesis of these stories are is the fact that three of them, one of them started as a long narrative poem, a very bad long narrative poem <laughs> about Ariadne on Naxos. Okay, yes, and yeah. I thought, what can I do with it? And in, in the end, I just put it into prose and it seemed to sort of find its home there. Three of them started as plays. Um, there's a long story here, I'll give you the very short version. Because of Curious Incident on stage and because of writing a play for the Donmar Warehouse, I sort of fell in love with theatre really lovely people and it gets you out of the house which is important if you're a writer <laughs> and I spent a whole year trying to write plays dreadful plays they uh, all of them got about third of the way through half the way through and I just knew they weren't working and um, on the way home from seeing the opening night of Curious Incident uh, uh, the Danish version uh, we were at Copenhagen Airport we'd spend the night watching it in a language neither Simon Stevens the adapter or I understood very very <laughs> odd experience um, he knew the text very, very well, of course, so he looked like he could understand Danish because he just chuckled the whole way through and nodded. <laughs> the only three words I understood were shit, fuck, and didcock parkway. <laughs> but in Starbucks at the airport on the way home, I told him about my problems with plays, and he said, tell me the plots. I only got a sentence into each one, and he said, no, not going to work. No, that's not going to work either. No, that one won't. And he told me something that's been really important ever since and I now see it as a big distinction between particularly stage drama and fiction. You can write a very long novel about stuff happening to someone. On stage you have to write about people doing things. Every main character who comes on stage has to have a game plan. Even if they don't know it they're trying to make something happen. And Simon says a novel is like a finished piece of work. You make it as so fine as you can. He said, when I write a play, it's like a football match. I want you not to know who's going to win. 
That was an answer to a question I've now completely forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was, that was great, and it leads beautifully to Daisy, because Daisy's writing is quite um, brilliantly elliptical, and that there are lots of omissions, um, but there's that feeling of a dialogue as, as a reader. Um, it's something I really love about short fiction, that you can be, um, you can be drawn into these gaps, to these spaces. And, um, and Daisy makes these imaginative leaps, and you just want to go with her, and um, you trust that it's, it's going to be interesting because she, she sets up a promise pretty early in the collection that this will be um, a realm which is wildly imaginative and very bold and um, sexually charged. I mean, that's something that's pretty consistent throughout the collection. And um, it's been described as a liminal book, which is absolutely right because... Um, she draws on characters who are often hybrids between um, animals and humans, fish and humans. There's this sort of watery, um, fluid world that she um, conjures and that gives a real sense of um, cohesion to the book. Um, I think that's all I'll say by way of introduction, but would you be happy to read? Yes. Your excerpt. Uh, so this is from a story which is split into three parts. Um, and I'm going to read the first part. The story is called How to Lose It. It has a swear word in. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but I'm going to say it, I think. <laughs> um, how to Lose It. Never seen a man naked before. Clothes coming apart until there he was. Isabel thought she would remember him whole, standing afterwards at the window checking his messages or standing at the base of the bed looking down at her. Instead, she kept only bits of him, the slick of snail trail, the dry skin on his thighs and upper arms, the rake of spine vanishing at its base. What was it like? Shields asked her. Dunno. What? I don't know. Shields looked as though she didn't believe her. Shields had never seen a man without his get-together on. But what was it like? Isabel knew what Shields was asking, the bulge of it ribbing out the front of his trousers the eyeing length of it in flat propulsion against his belly, the probing of it at her thigh line and after when it was leached up and he handed it away out of view. You know, she said, you know. Though Shields didn't, and she felt nasty for not giving her something to take away, not even something about the hotel, the blonde kid throwing up in the lobby so no one noticed her going in, taking the stairs, how all the corridors looked much of a muchness and none of the room numbers joined together so she ended up wandering a good distance in the wrong direction. Something about the light in the room when he opened the door. Stale light. The window didn't open enough to take even an elbow, and with the smell of cigarette butts, it needed to. If there had been a way not to, she probably wouldn't have taken off anything when he told her to. Though on the train she'd wanted it, and at family parties when he was the only person she wasn't related to, taking her aside to tell her about Russian literature, she'd wanted it even more wanted it bad enough to make all the right motions in the right order and find herself there, down to her pants in a holiday inn, return train ticket in her purse to make sure she didn't stay. He called her Fizzy Izzy the way he always did and she, playing the part, grimaced to make him laugh. Well, you did it anyway, Shields said, swinging herself down off the car bonnet. What? You got rid of, you got rid of it, didn't you? Virginity was a half-starved dog you were looking after, wanted to give away as quickly as possible so you could forget it ever existed. The girls at school, whose was worse, whose lasted longest, where it happened, when. 
Helena's story, that older college boy, tattoos like handcuffs round his wrists and the bar cutting his eyebrows silver, hanging outside the gate after school, putting his hands up Helena's shirt out where all the parents could see. Helena said she was holding out, said he didn't want it bad enough yet. It was the lingo of sales and stocks. What was the best deal? When was the right time to sell it all? Isabel saw it in full colour, the shape of the boy's arms as he lifted the garage door, the skirt short enough for Helena to save till then, the bike he wheeled out to her. It was, Helena said, approaching the punchline with eyebrow cocked, a boy's bike, a fucking racing boy's bike, high enough he had to hold the drop handlebars while she climbed on. What do I do at traffic lights, she said, legs wavering, clutching his shoulder. His eyes were the colour of skylines, his shrug nonchalant enough to shudder feeling up her thighs, along her belly, don't stop, he said. She set out ahead of him down the, down the road, skirt snickering high enough to thigh her plan of action to Mrs Waiting's net curtains. She'd lead him out along the canal towpath and down, find a good hedge, be waiting like some knowing nymph when he caught up. She heard him running behind her, wheeling the bike to gather speed, there was the rattle of the cards fixed to his spokes. She lowered her shoulder to take the turning onto the towpath. The ground pitted deep, the hole she saw ducking beneath her handlebars, the wheel turning as it went in and her pitching forward and down onto the bar between her legs. So I lost it, Helena said, shook her head with wry impatience at the forecast of everything, of life and what it surely would bring. Virginity lost against the bar of a bike. Isabel thought often, about the traffic lights, imagining Helena and the boy skidding through the reds, not yarring sounds of fear or triumph, but silent in concentration, even in a hotel room with cigarette-smelling sheets, even with a man 20 years her senior and the only person her father ever got drunk with, even with no condom, she thought it would be like riding red lights. Actually, can I ask you a question? Do you do that thing that I do? You just write something quietly on your own, and then you look, read it, and you read back, and you think, shit, other people are going to read this. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah my grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> I even, when, even at my age, it doesn't stop. And I still feel the same way. Yeah, the horror. One of the things that um, comes to me about that that passage and how it relates to the collection is, um, as, w as well as a sexual frankness, wh what you do very brilliantly is, is explore this quite queasy territory of um, what it means to be young, to be growing up, to be going through certain rites of passage. Um, but exploring um, a territory which is, it's sort of right on the threshold of what can be expressed and what can't be expressed. Um, it feels that you are over and over with these stories grappling with that. Um, and, and that grappling becomes um, extreme through this sort of meeting of the natural and the fantastical. Um, could you talk a little bit about how that all came together? Because it's, it's very, this is a very distinctive book. Um, they're both very distinctive books. And Daisy's marked out a very particular territory. Um, I wondered if you could talk about how that all came together. Um. So I think it started kind of with the fantastical um, in my mind. Mm. So I really wanted to write about um, the eels 
and I knew there was something strange about the eels in the fen landscape. There are these strange creatures which you only hunt at night and things. Um, but actually in the writing of the stories, and I think this is the same in Mark's stories, and what you were talking about, about the smoking gun, mm. um, there's so only so much tension before something very strange needs to happen, yeah. which is maybe what it feels like being a teenager. You know, there's so much tension um, before you go and do something silly or you, um, yeah, you crash your bike or... Um, so they kind of came from um, wanting to start with that tension um, and knowing that they were going to come into something very strange, I think, is where they started. And so there's this, um, there's this language of, of metamorphosis which you establish, um, and it becomes quite usual that um, a boy would transform into a fox or a woman would transform into an eel. Um, and it means that you, as, as a reader, the effect is, um, it, I used the word exhilarating before, and it, it really is exhilarating. You, you sort of feel anything is possible, and you don't always feel that. Um, and you don't always feel as a reader that you're prepared to follow the writer wherever they're going to take you. And that's something that, that really does come through. So the, the territory is established, and, and then it, just, it becomes this playground. It's, um, it's really wonderful. Um, Mark, you also draw on, um, well, you both draw on myth, folklore. Um, I wanted to ask you both a little bit about what it means to adapt or to loosely adapt or to use as inspiration folklore, myth. Um. I've got two stories in mm. the collection, one, uh, which are ad adaptations. Uh, one's Ariadne on Naxos, although I don't know Naxos, so it's Ariadne on Skoma, really, because I know Skoma Island a lot better, and it's fiction, so I'm in charge. And the other one is a version of Gawain and the Green Knight, which I... Actually, there is a story to this. Um, I've loved Gawain and the Green Knight. Does everyone know the story? It's Oxford. Does everyone know the story of Gawain and the Green Knight? <laughs> <laughs> Even the people who don't were chuckling to cover themselves up, weren't they? <laughs> okay, let's assume you do. I wanted, to I wanted to work out a way of modernising it, and I tried and tried and tried and tried. And eventually it came together when I realised I could set it in my parents' dining room and have a stranger come in with a sawn-off shotgun. Actually, maybe you feel some of this, same, this, this, this weird transgression. I realised there is almost no greater pleasure in writing than destroying your parents' dining room. <laughs> Do you know... I, t I teach writing with people who say writing is all about respecting and loving the world and sort of looking into it with sort of detail and sometimes you just want to just stamp all over it and it's just as good fun. Yeah. It, it's, it's, a, yeah, it's like a grown-up version of being very naughty. I think trans transgressions are a really good word because that's definitely what I feel about myths and folklore, that there's something there um, and what can you do, how much can you do to it um, and the fact that often someone will, I didn't recognise um, Gawain in the Green Knight, um, but I knew the story on the island. And um, so by knowing it and then seeing what he'd done to it, there is something kind of, um, yeah, quite delicious about kind of how much you can destroy something, I think. The thing I noticed about your book, which is different from almost all the other short stories I read, I'm trying to find the right word for this, it was the, it was the moistest, squelchiest set of <laughs> short stories I think I read for a really long time. You'll be very coy, you're saying there's a lot of water in here, <laughs> liminal spaces but we both feel like we're writing about bodies and in a quite a sort of messy yeah. way don't yeah. we i mean i had great fun describing an appendectomy having watched one on youtube in great detail 
But you like, yeah, fluids. Should we call it fluids? Yeah, that's moist. Yeah, you that's nice. Nice. <laughs> 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 yeah, and I guess it's how far you can push that without someone not wanting to read it at all. Do you think, though, when you're writing, do you think, how far can I push it? Um, a bit, <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> um, and I guess it's the logistics of, so your story about the deer, um, a deer is killed in one of the stories, and then it's how these small boys get the deer from the forest to the, yeah. and it's lo the logistics of it is kind of, mm. um, is really interesting against the moist disgustingness of it, I think. It's really interesting. That, that's something that does interest me in terms of how you, if, if you're making um, quite great leaps in, in a piece of writing and um, you're asking your reader to follow you, the, the way you get them to come with you. And mm. very often it's through um, either technical details, so something like the appendectomy, mm. or um, it's the same story, isn't it, set on Mars. Yeah. Um, and so while you're in this, this world that none of us have experienced, amazingly, you are, you are physically there every step of the way. And um, the effect is... The effect is very, I, I actually found, particularly in the story set on Mars, I found the effect very moving, which surprised me, because you get so caught up in these details, and it makes um, the experience something so relatable, even though it's fantastical, even though it's, it's something that, well, maybe some of us would, would experience a trip to Mars, who knows, but, but it's, it's a leap. Um, but it's not just the details, it's... it's, it's it's sort of the horrible stuff slash important stuff as well. And I'm just realising one of the things that, that great about your stories, you don't shy away from the... You know the stuff that all stories shy away from? It's usually sex and death. Mm. Um, it's always sort of truncated and it happens and you slide off somewhere else where you slow down and think, oh, let's do the sex. Mm. Oh, let's do the penis. Yeah. You know what I mean? And actually, it's sort of what we want to know about, isn't it? Yeah. The, it the, the suffering. Do you want to know about... I've just finished listening to Bleak House, which is one of my favourite novels ever, but as in all Victorian novels, you know when people sort of just die of a moral kind of seizure? <laughs> their life is somehow morally unsustainable, and they just sort of lie down and close their eyes on the pillow? But I always think how people die is actually really, really fascinating. How do you cross them? What is it like being in the last few minutes? What's, what's physically happening to your body when you're profoundly ill? I think you have the same kind of interest in... Yeah, creepy interest, yeah. Creepy, yes. But um, creepy, but also companionable. Yeah. I mean, that was a word that came to mind when I was reading um, both of your collections, because there was a very strong feeling of, we are going to do this. Me, the writer, you, the reader. We're, we're going to look at this stuff, this death, this sex, this difficulty, this awkwardness, this embarrassment, whatever it might be. And, and, and that um, bridged between darkness and um, experiences that we will all wrangle with at some point in our lives and introduced th this element of humanity and compassion and um, I suppose flavours that come quite unexpectedly at times when you're in the middle of, of quite a dark piece of writing um, and there's a, certain, there's a certain magic to that as a reading experience. I wanted to um, ask you both a little bit about writing in the short story form as uh, a kind of hybrid form, so it, it has narrative and poetic capacities. What does that allow you to do? Um, do you find that exciting? Um, yes, really exciting. And um, 
so someone reading Fen, but I think this goes for a lot of short stories, and certainly when I was reading yours, I described them as truffles, so you can only you only have one, and you said Maybe this when you yeah. yeah, and then you have to sit back and kind of have a rest. Mm. Um, and I think because <laughs> um, because people feel they can do that with short stories, they feel they can read one mm. and then put it down. It's quite forgiving in the same way that maybe poetry is, that you would maybe read a poem. Mm. Um, whereas I feel people read novels in a really different way. I forgot what your question was, but... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That's fine, to do with, to do with the, um, it being quite a hybrid form, so oh, yeah. having narrative and, um, and sort of more lyrical or poetic capacities. Um, yeah, so... I think yeah, may, I, I'm try now trying to write a novel and finding it quite difficult to move to move from one to the other. Um, maybe because um, maybe writing short stories are quite as so. I feel like reading them you can maybe take more in, but writing them I quite find and they're quite unforgiving mm. because um, because they're so short. There's no room for any novels. Can be quite kind of baggy and kind of jellyfish like. Um, <laughs> yeah, so the narrative has to be quite concise in an almost poetic way, maybe? I'm just awed by your ability to pause between chocolates. <laughs> <laughs> rich chocolates. <laughs> <laughs> rich, well, yeah. Um, for me, there's not really much difference. I think you want, you want structure, you want the poetry, you want, you want to get everything in, whatever you're writing. But for me, the difference with a short story is you can take a risk. Mm. I would never have sat down to write a whole novel set on Mars, mm. or a whole novel set in the 19th century in the Amazon jungle. Because throwing away 100,000 words is really, really painful if it all goes wrong. Mm. Throwing away 20,000 words is quite painful, but it's not as bad. So I just thought, yeah, I can, let's go for it. Mm. And I, maybe, maybe that's, maybe you feel that as well. Maybe you could even take a risk. You think, I'll do something a bit, a little bit bonkers. And if it pays off, it pays off. But I've always been, I don't really believe in this mythic, numinous division between short stories and novels. I think, I think you tell stories in the same way. You hold, you hold, someone, hold a reader's attention and you can, use, you can hold it in the same way whether you've got 500 pages ahead or 20 pages ahead. I think it was um, Nam Lee who said something along the lines of short stories can do everything a novel can except be long, <laughs> yeah. but there's, there's this tremendous capacity and I mean the, the one thing that always strikes me with short stories is, is you have this gift of compression, mm. so whatever subject you're exploring and however you're doing it, the reader's aware that um, this is going to come to an end and that lends a, a certain um, charge to the reading experience which is what brings me back over and over again. Um, Ali Smith has talked about it as a life-death form. So sort of the sense that it's going to be over is something that gives a, a, a yeah, a, a charge which can, um, in which the stakes can be as high as they possibly could be. Mm. And I think, I mean, that comes through in your collection, Mark, mm. when you're exploring situations that um, people are really up against it in one way or another. It's not looking good. And as a reader, you... Well, very often I would find myself looking to see how many more pages I had to go <laughs> before the end and thinking, what can happen in this space? Um, I'm just wondering if one of the differences between our short stories is the fact that my age, that I'm writing about death and you're writing about sex. <laughs> 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 I, I, people say, why is there so much death in it? And I say, well, isn't that, 
isn't, doesn't death underlie everything? Um, because, you know, life only matters because it comes to an end, because we lose people, because we can't do everything we want to do, because our dreams are limited. Um, but now I'm, now I'm beginning to realise we only have stories because there is death, because things come to an end, or, or we'd be Greek gods and we'd just be on the top of Mount Olympus living forever and being beautiful. Now I'm just starting to wonder whether that's just because I'm 53. <laughs> <laughs> and whether you could answer the question by saying, well, isn't everything about sex? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I think you're right, and um, certainly maybe in the short story form what you were saying about them seeing the end, maybe it is a kind of small death, I guess, um, in each story. But your characters do have sex. They don't always enjoy it very much. You strap lines on our two books. More death, more fun sex. It's true. Actually, you know, I was thinking I, I, need, I need to put more sex into stories. I can do death okay. I'll do, do death. Next, next challenge. You have less death and more sex, don't you? Yeah. I'll put more death, more death. <laughs> um, I wanted to put you both on the spot and ask you for a favourite short story. You probably don't have one favourite, but for the sake of the exercise, a favourite and why? Why should everyone in the audience go out and read it? Do you want to go first or do you want thinking time? <laughs> yeah, thinking okay. time. Mm -hmm. um, ooh. It's called Verna and it's by Joe Ann Beard. Mm -hmm. And the reason it sticks in my mind is because I thought it was a short story and it wasn't. It's a piece of reportage and it's about a young man, Werner Hufflick, who was trapped in his New York apartment during an apartment fire and he saved his life by calling upon his skills as a high school gymnast, you know, 20 years previously, jumping from the window of his apartment across the gap between apartment buildings and in through a window on the next door down in the next building, injuring himself horribly but surviving. It was written with the kind of attention to detail you only expect from really finely wrought fiction. And only afterwards did I find out that it was, it was real. And pointed up the difference for me between it made me think yes you need to write with that attention to detail but what you write about has to be at least as exciting as stuff that happens in the world you know what I mean there on the television in the newspapers there are there's thrilling things terrible things happening all the time and if you, if you can't come up with something which is as gripping as that then is it worth it um, so my memory is really bad and I um change my mind every single or every single time I read a story but I think at the moment um, Stone Rabbits by Kelly Link which is um, kind of a modern haunted house story in which um, a family moved to a new house um, which has these stone rabbits at the door at the entrance to it um, which are already kind of weird um, and as they're in the house different parts of the house become haunted um, so that they can't use the dishwasher because the dishwasher is haunted um, and then the youngest son becomes haunted um, so the mother won't talk to him um, and the, the woman is pregnant at the time so it's it's kind of I think um, about her really freaking out about being pregnant um, and feeling haunted herself she wonders if the baby in her belly is haunted um, and she's kind of as she's trying to get rid of whatever the ghosts are by painting the walls so she paints over the walls until the walls are sagging in and kind of becoming closer and closer um, and it's just really really creepy and yeah very very good mm. <laughs> and what about one writer more broadly so one short story writer that you would thrust into people's hands to get them started if they had never read a short story 
a body of work? I don't think of them like that, actually. Really? Too often I'll read a... Well, to go back to the chocolate analogy, mm. I've always liked reading things like McSweeney's or Grant magazine because you get a selection of short fiction for everyone. Too often I'll read a collection and it's a bit like... It's a bit like getting a box of chocolates mm. and they're all, you know, sherbet lemon. Or they're all, they're all, they're all the same flavour. And, and I want something different. I want, I want a continental assortment. <laughs> so that's why, that's why I, I subscribe to those two magazines, because I get a selection all the time. So an anthology? Or an, an anthology, or yeah. Journal. Do you have a particular anthology or journal you really like? Do you know, I've got every, I, I mentioned Granted because I always have read that. It has its, has its low moments, but I've got every, every single um, issue since about 1741. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, granted. Um, I would say probably Sarah Hall um, mm -hmm. has always kind of stood out for me. And I think she has a new one coming out soon, a collection, which is oh, exciting. Um, but also, um, she's from earlier, but um, Lucia Berlin, her, yeah. the, what's yeah. it, the cleaning? What? Her manual for cleaning. Women. Yeah, is um, fantastic. Um, and is very long um, for a collection. Um, yeah, so maybe I think I agree with you. I wouldn't read that one as a collection. I'd read kind of bits of it, but that's mm. fantastic. Yeah. Actually, can I have my second choice of favourite short story from Sarah Hall as well? Sarah Hall. Do you know Evie? Mm, I it, don't think so. It's the rudest short story I've <laughs> ever read in my life. And it won, uh, no, it came second in the Sunday Times short story competition. They were really, really relieved because they knew they couldn't publish it. It was that <laughs> rude. And I went to a public read. You know when you stand up and you have to apologise to the audience? This is just, it's about a woman turns out that she has she has a brain tumor and it causes her to become sort of more open and lascivious and things get very very sexual it's the most extraordinary live reading experience i've ever seen the first actor who agreed to read it read it on the bus th the day before and uh, resigned and they had to get another actor at the last minute and do you know that sort of it's the story if you're caught if you're reading it and someone came into the room you just feel sticky and horrible and you want to sort of put the book down but like this group number of people had to sit there being read to loudly by an actor you could have heard a pin drop it was astonishing but a really astonishing piece of writing it wasn't pornographic because it was so it didn't elide anything it looked it looked sort of sex in the face mm. and you had to sort of stare back you can look it up now yeah that's really was good <laughs> Well, this might be about the right time, I think, to open this up to you. I'm sure there will be questions. If there aren't, I've got tons more. But has anyone got a question for Mark or Daisy? Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, really fascinating you and your talk. Just wondering, um, you were um, talking about um, how um, society is always wanting to obey tough subjects like sex and death. Uh, and on that note, do you think you're consciously, uh, or even unco unconsciously, really addressing, you know, British society's hang-ups on, on those points, or not? Um, I think all society's hang-ups, maybe. I think there's always... Um, so I always think of it as, um, and Mark talked about this a bit, there's always that kind of this weird white space in books or films where, um, so the characters will be in a bar and they'll kind of be um, flirting and things. Um, and then you, there'll be a weird white space in, on, in the book where they have sex and they kind of all fall into it. And then they come out the other side and they're kind of having a shower. <laughs> um, I don't know if it, yeah, and I don't know if it's just British. I think maybe it's just in general, kind of the world feels quite awkward about these things. Um, yeah, which are quite natural, I guess. And um, 
I remember when my parents first started swearing in front of me. It felt quite similar to that, as if quite like quite relieved that <laughs> it was kind of coming out. I think maybe. I think it's less. There is a lot of terrible things in the news, and there's a lot of sex in the news. It's not so much of, of as for me, it's not turning a spotlight on something that's not talked about. It's talked about a lot, but it's taking it seriously. Mm. Um, I mean, the first the first story in here is about a pier collapsing, mm. and about 67 people die. So in a way, it's like a lot of disasters on the news recently. Um, but for me, it's important not just to use that kind of terrible event to get some kind of voltage off it, but to say, I'm actually going to look at really dispassionately and really empathetically mm -hmm. about what actually happens, to look, actually look, look some difficult things in the face. Because even though our society is full of sex and violence, it's not real sex and violence, is it? Mm -hmm. It's sort of pretend sex and violence. I mean, entertainment. It it's is. entertainment, yeah, and it's just, it's just, it's just mm -hmm. skimmed surface. Yeah. So what you really mean is it's really a question of the attitude which you want to bring. <coughs> Well, just the question I'm always asking is, what's it really like? Even with myths, I don't know whether you do this as well. If you, you read a myth, I mean, I'm, I'm obsessed with Narcissus and Echo at the moment. I'm just saying, what would it actually feel like? Or, or maybe to go back to, to Ariadne on Naxos, which mm -hmm. was a source of the stories. She gets written out of the story. She's dumped on the island, and then there's another blank space, isn't there? Mm -hmm. And I just thought to myself, what, is it, what would it be really like to be that woman? What would it be really like to be just left? on an island mm. and just presumably die there. And that's, that's what I mean, that's the blank space in the newspapers, on the TV documentary. And to look at that blank space and say, let's take it seriously, let's, let's ask what it's really, really like. From the inside, is it? Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Both. Yeah, the, it struck me that the final story in your collection, it, made, it, made, it felt a little bit like a coda to the collection in, in terms of the relationship you set up where um, I, I'm not giving anything away to describe the setup. So the setup is, um, an, uh, I guess, an unlikely friendship develops between a woman who um, hears voices, who's, who's schizophrenic, I'm assuming, and a man who is troubled. And the, the thing that's very moving about this relationship is that um, there's a kind of um, a patient and solid bearing witness that happens. Yeah. And and I thought that's, that's so much of your approach in so many of the stories, <coughs> that um, there's a willingness to, um, to bear witness and to stick with some pretty tough stuff, um, but to turn a level gaze, I suppose, yeah. on this material. And may maybe we're joking about it earlier, saying we're sort of being naughty and transgressive, and then we go out and in, then we finish the book and think, oh my god, other people have got to read it. It's not just being transgressive, isn't no. it? It's saying. No. Stuff is, this stuff is important yeah. in life. Let me look at, look at it really closely with open eyes. Yeah. That final story is interesting because it's an aftermath story, I suppose, in a way yeah. that some of the other ones aren't. Um, so the bad thing happens, the gun is shot or whatever. Um, yeah, is that why it's at the end? Cause it's a, cause <laughs> I gave you the serious answer to that question. The less serious answer <laughs> is that I wrote the first nine stories and uh, my wife, who's my first reader and best editor, she said, Mark, why don't you write at least one story in which no one dies? <laughs> <laughs> and that was the inspiration. And, that's, it's at the end, so at least you can maybe have a sort of, you can actually go to sleep at night after having read it. Yeah. And it's, it ends on a slight yeah. up note. Yeah, that's the lullaby. <laughs>
Anyone else with a question? When you get to the point where you finish writing and you start to organize the stories, is there something that, is there a theme that you pick up on, or does it kind of just get organized and you let an editor take over from there? Like, how <laughs> do you decide what starts, what's in the middle, and what finishes? Mm. How did you do it? Um, so my fan has a central story in the middle, which is a bit longer, um, and kind of threads it together a bit. Um, and the stories are sort of arranged by age. So in the first half, they're um, younger, they're kind of teenagers or children. Um, and in the second half, they're quite solitary, older characters. Um, but I tried a lot of different ways. I kind of shifted them around and carried a notebook around trying to work out and then, yeah, talked to the editor and things. Um, I don't think there was a right way ever to do it, but it kind of it fell into a particular way, which I, I liked. I liked it being in a pattern, I think. Did you do it after they were all finished? Yeah. The, my answer is just so boring. I just it just goes um, present day, not present day, present day, not present day, <laughs> and it goes sort of real fantasy, real fantasy, and it starts off with big death toll and ends up with no one dying. <laughs> and that's it. What do you think? Um, I think there is a kind of resurgence happening. I'm not sure whether that is because you can see them online. Um, yeah, I hope so. And I think uh, you can, I mean, you can read when people win competitions, you can read their short stories online, which I always really, really like. Um, and then maybe something about magazines, them being in magazines and things. I don't know if it is about online. I think the competitions are quite important because you need some kind of gatekeeper, don't you? Online is great, but unfortunately everything, absolutely everything is online. You need some way of searching, searching through it. I and mean, I'm very grateful to physical publishers for having rejected five novels that I've written. It was, re it was really important that no one ever got to read those. <laughs> <laughs> and the problem is, if now I might have been tempted to um, hand those over to the waiting world. And it would have been very bad for me. I, ne I needed to be kicked back a lot and made, made to write better. I think that's one of the problems about online. There's not enough pressure on you. There's not, en there's not enough rejection, to put, put it in the harsh way. Mm. I think, that, um, have you ever listened to On the New Yorker? They have a great thing where an um, author reads another author's short story. Mm. I think yeah. things like that, kind of um, short story writers talking to one another, I think is really, Im is really important, um, discussing the form and things. Yeah. I think one of the sad things last year was that the Folio Prize temporarily c collapsed. The Folio Prize was promising to do something very different in that uh, short story collections, and al along with poetry, could compete for the same prize. And in fact, George Saunders' collection, fantastic collection, yeah, uh, 10th of writing. December, mm. won it. Unfortunately, that was the penultimate year, and then the, the prize disappeared. That's a real pity. I wish it had mm. carried on. And I wish there were more pr other prizes like that, which were just for fiction of whatever length. <laughs> it's not a very. Uh, yes, <laughs> I'm finding it quite difficult. Um, it's not very, uh, it's not a very interesting answer. But I, um, um, I, I've got a two book deal with my publisher, and the second one was for a novel. Um, 
sorry. <laughs> um, but I always, well, I always wanted to write a novel. I wrote, um, none of them have done anything, but I wrote novels before short stories. Um, but I find it really hard moving my brain from being in that short story space to, yeah, to sticking with one subject and making it fit a certain amount of words. Um, but I've always wanted to do, to do both, I think. Because I do, I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I think they're really different um, acts, I think, as you're, when you're sitting down. Um, and, yeah. I'm trying to do it in the same way. Um, I, do you know Sarah Moss? Yeah, so I um, saw her and she talked about layering, which is how she writes, which is she writes an entire first draft, so 80,000 words. Um, and then she doesn't just rewrite it, she deletes the document. Um, and then writes the whole thing from wow. scratch, yeah, which is um, ruthless, brave. yeah. <laughs> and that's kind of how I write short stories. I don't delete them, but I kind of, um, I'm, I'm quite messy. So I, uh, I write the whole thing and then go back all over it. Um, and I'm trying to do that with a novel, but it's, it's painful in a way that um, getting rid of 4,000 words just isn't <laughs> painful, yeah. How, what about you, Mark? How, how do you edit? <laughs> I always describe it as rather like combing a really long-haired dog. <laughs> that I'll go but every when I'm writing, when I'm writing, which is not all the time. Because sometimes I sometimes I just can't do it. I just can't do it. But when I am writing, I'll go back about 10, 15 pages, and I'll just go through it to getting the knots out. So every so every bit has been. It's it's just like this. It's like each bit has probably been edited about 30 or 40 times. And then I need some real tidying up at the end because the ending hasn't gone to that same repeated process. Mm -hmm. And I, it doesn't always happen, but for me, there's a kind of... And a lot of that it's combing, it's getting the knots out and it's sort of getting rid of stuff and making it compact. Just occasionally, I, I never write a good first draft. My first drafts are always dreadful. Um, I'm not very naturally a very good writer, but I'm quite a good editor of myself. And it get, gets a point, and it can take 15, 20, maybe 30 edits. And it finally gets to the sort of right consistency. And I'll think, yeah, <laughs> it's finally there. And it kind of locks into place. Mm. It'll be nice if it happened more often, but it does <laughs> happen. Um, we should probably wrap up quite soon, but any more questions? Maybe a final couple? Yeah, go ahead. Um, this is quite typical and probably doesn't only apply to short stories, but when you do start writing a short story, do you always know where it will end? Do you want me to go first? <laughs> yeah, go on. Um, no, I normally um, start with uh, like a line or a way of character might speak um, or a, an idea, but I don't know, nor no. <laughs> One of the blessings of, of writing uh, from a, a myth, doing an adaptation, is you, mm. for once in your life, you actually <laughs> know how it ends. <laughs> Gawain and the Green Knight, you know you're going to end next Christmas, and it's such a relief <laughs> to, have, to have that structure. And in fact, I, I, I have so little idea of where it's going that that final story called The Weir, it's about the couple who come together after a sort of failed suicide attempt. Half of the, I thought the story was finished, and half of it just sat around for a year, 18 months, and it just lay there looking sad. And it took me all that time to come back to it and read it again and think, that was only the first half of the story. It's always like that. Mm. Mm. And in fact, I, 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 have, I must have written 
started writing 50 short stories to get the nine in here. Um, and I had no idea where they were going. <laughs> and they went nowhere appropriately. <laughs> No? One final question. I didn't know they would be there, but I kind of talked with the designer um, and she, so she did, um, oh sorry, that's not what, yeah. Um, she was doing kind of really big A4 paper and doing sort of ink um, and then she sent me a load. Um, did she do them herself? Yeah, um, in yeah, with an ink and a paintbrush, um, and but I didn't know they'd be there. But it's kind of as perfect as I could have imagined it would be, um, and w and it was um, so it was published as a zine, like a little um, sort of magazine to begin with, um, and that we had them all the way through. So it kind of carried on from that. We share, we actually share a, a designer, Suzanne Dean at Random House, and she is the loveliest woman, isn't she? Yeah, she's, she's amazing, not only a great yeah. designer; she's a really, really lovely mm. woman. Yeah. Um, and in fact, um, she designed this book as well. And the, the sweetest thing about this is this, this is actual deck chair material. She went and ordered some deck chair material from a deck chair supply company. And at the launch party, she gave me a little present. She'd, um, she got a cushion made out of deck, the same deck chair material. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, we love Suzanne, don't we? Do. We do. But you, I think you did know that you were going to have illustrations, is that right? I did, yes. Mm. This is a rather long answer to a final question. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Um, it's a bit cheeky. When I finished the book, I asked Random House if we could actually forbid Amazon from selling it. Uh, that scared their pants off completely because they thought Amazon would come and destroy them, so I wasn't allowed to do it. So what we did instead was I, um, I did an illustrated edition with my illustrations in that's only available in bookshops as a way of sort of saying, we love bookshops and thank you to bookshops. And I got some of my pictures in the book again after a curious incident with my pictures in. I've been dying to get my pictures back in again, and I finally made it. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Rosie.